Welcome to the Pulp Nostalgia Audiocast. This week we have part six, the conclusion of the Secret Agent X story, The Fear Merchants. Originally published in March 1936, it was written by Paul Chadwick under the pseudonym Brandt House. And if you're a fan of pulp, you might want to check out the latest release from Brick Prickle Media, Chicago Pulp Tales, now available in print and ebook format. It features vintage pulp stories set in the Windy City. It can be ordered from Amazon or any other bookstore. You can also get a discounted price by ordering direct from our website, and that link is in the show notes. This podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production, copyright 2020. For more from Brick Pickle Media, visit www.pulpaudiocast.com. And if you'd like to support our efforts, you can find a link to all of our books and our entire online store on the website. And with that, on with the show. Chapter 13, The Trap A tall man who looked like Police Commissioner Foster left L.L. Slater's home at 8 that night. Armed detectives were posted in the vestibule, but none tried to stop him. Others stationed along the street made deferential salutes to the department's supreme head. The man's bulky overcoat concealed the canvas pouches strapped around his waist. His face gave no hint that L.L. Slater lay unconscious in his study upstairs. The commissioner was apparently just emerging from a conference. He walked down the street, entered a car, and drove away unmolested. The collection of the money had been simple for Agent X. So far, he had kept his promise to the extortionist group, but his face under the disguise of the Commissioner Foster was tense. He was preparing to make desperate plays, still uncertain of his game. He did not change his disguise and drive to the Hotel Hadley to claim Marcedon's room. Instead, he went to his nearest hideout and made up once more as Boss Santos. He left the canvas pouches of money in a secret vault under the floor. As Santos, he sped in his low-slung coupe toward Morningside Square. When he drew up before number 19, the doorman gave him a curious glance, but Dex's manner was impressive. He stalked into the apartment, swinging his gold-headed cane. The girl clerk at the receptionist's desk gave him a brief, admiring glance. The agent carried off his sporty suit with the air of a cavalier. Just tell Madame Coleman an old friend's calling, he said. A luxurious elevator whisked him up to the tenth floor, the operator pointed with a white-gloved hand. Third door on the right, sir. The agent moved forth with no inkling of what lay ahead. Blossom Shane had obviously taken him for Boss Santos when he'd seen her at noon. He hoped to get valuable secrets from her tonight. The first hint of danger came when Blossom Shane opened the door for him herself. There was a strange expression in the woman's eyes. Exit looked into the face of death so often he had come to know its signs. A cr- chill crept along his back. Under his disguised face, the muscles stiffened. Boss, it's you. Come in. She smiled with the glint of her white teeth behind crimson lips like the leer of a gorgon's head. X saw that she was deathly white beneath her makeup. Every nerve in the agent's body warned him of peril, but he followed the woman to her apartment with a grin on his face. Hey, nice dump you got here, Blossom. Yeah, I like it. The woman's eyes swiveled back at him over her white, snaky shoulder. The fingers of her left hand were clenched. Nothing wrong, is there, Blossom? You seem kind of nervous, kid. Do I? Blossom O'Shane laughed, and the sound was as glassy, as brittle as the tinkle of breaking ice. There's nothing wrong. I'm just excited seeing an old pal. She pushed heavy draperies aside and entered a luxuriously furnished room. Wealth had been lavished here in Rococo taste. The agent's eyes swung to the rich curtains that covered the windows and two other doors. One of the curtains over a window seemed to him to bulge slightly. His vision, trained to detect the most microscopic movements, caught a breath-like stir. There was no maid visible in the apartment. That, too, was significant. Blossom O'Shane walked to a table and poured him a drink herself. This'll tickle your tonsils, boss. 
He noticed that her hand was trembling so that some of the liquor spilled. Sit down, boss, and rest your dogs. The agent took the liquor but ignored the offer of a chair. Instead, he turned slowly, nonchalantly, till his back was to the wall. There was a moment's silence in the room, a silence that seemed to portend doom. Blossom was watching him closely, eyes aglow. Behind the synthetic curve of her lashes, she said suddenly, I gotta have a smoke. Not waiting to see whether he had any cigarettes to offer, she moved with swiggering grace toward a square box on the mantel opposite where he stood. The agent had flung his hat, coat, and cane over a chair nearby. His eye measured the distance to them in a furtive, sidewise glance. Blossom O'Shane lifted the lid of the box and thrust her white hand in. She turned for a moment, facing him with a smile on her lips. Drink, she said, and enjoy it. It's the last one you'll ever get. Her hand came out of the box with a glitter of metal in it. Her voice rose till it was a hoarse scream like a hacksaw going over steel. Drink and take this, you rat! He saw her arm move forward at the speed of a striking snake. He dropped his glass and plunged sideways as her automatic spouted flame. Bullets slapped behind him. The same instant he saw three figures step into the room. One from the curtain over the window. Two from the curtains across the doors. Flat-chested, pale-faced men with glittering eyes. Men who held big automatics clamped in their talon-like fists. Men who had been waiting there to kill him, slaughter him in cold blood. The agent ignored them for a split second. He moved with the lightning suddenness of a tempered, uncalling spring. He flung his overcoat at the frenzied woman. It dropped over her white shoulders like a net. Her left hand swept up his cane. He plunged straight toward her. She was still pumping bolts at him through the fabric with the mechanical energy of a machine. The shots were going wild. The agent snatched the pistol through the coat. His fingers closed around it. He pulled coat and gun away with a savage jerk. He doubled up, did a backward somersault on the floor as other guns roared in a murderous crossfire. He got Blossom O'Shane's gun untangled from the coat and crashed a shot at the figure by the window. The man fell forward with a choking scream. He slapped another shot at the big bowl light below the ceiling and the room went dark. Light from the bulb in the hallway made a ghostly glow in the chamber. The agent knew he was still visible against the pattern of the rug. He jumped again, escaping by fractions of inches the bullets that snarled around. He felt the hot lash of a slug across the skin of his leg. He fired with desperate quickness at a pinpoint of flame by the door. There was only a metallic click in his hand. The gun was empty. The agent jerked at the gold head of his cane and a gleaming ribbon of steel came free in his hand. He flung the hidden sword across the room with a sound like a plucked cello string. A shaft of fire quivered for a moment in the air as the short point found its mark and the upright blade caught the light. Another man cried out in pain. A second gun was silenced. The third gunman fired two wild shots and fled. The thud of his receding footsteps sounded in the room behind the curtain. A window opened and banged shut. The agent found a bridge lamp and snapped it on. His eyes had the bright glitter of polished steel. They roved around the room. The man he had shot lay moaning on the floor. The other, with a sword point in his body, had sunk to his knees and was clawing dazedly at the blade. Blossom O'Shane pressed against the mantle, hands pressed to her breast, face white as plaster. As the light went on, she made a pantherous leap for the stabbed man's gun. The agent beat her to it. He snatched up the weapon, menaced her with his muzzle. Quick, he said, tell me about these men you work for. Fear of death eclipsed her trembling fury. She shrank away. Speak, said the agent. Three seconds is all you got. He had never shot a woman. Never would, but terror was the only language Blossom O'Shane knew. She seemed to wilt before it. Her eyes were fixed on the gun muzzle as though it were a snake. No! No, you wouldn't do it! Don't kill me like you did the boss! I'm a right dame! Don't! The agent's gun moved closer, and words came in a frenzied rush from the woman's lips. I get it! You want to double-cross the guys I work for! I, I'd help you if I could, but listen! I don't know nothing about them, see? Honest, it's the truth! I'm giving you the straight dope! I don't want to die! Prove it! I will! Give me a chance! I'll do it! Look! Come here! Watching his face fearfully, she slid away. She beckoned with a hand that seemed almost frozen. 
The agent followed, suspicious of some trick. She moved the steps of a person in the grip of a nightmare horror into another room. It was her boudoir, and she led him through it. She opened a top bureau drawer while the agent watched tensely. She thrust a queer-shaped key in the lock of a door. Beyond was a smaller chamber the woman pointed to a desk. I don't know them. I never saw them. I don't know who they are. They contacted me first by telephone. They sent me my dough by mail. When I want to talk to any of them, I just use that. Her trembling fingers unlocked the desk with a rattle of metal. See? It's a radio telephone. i never seen any of them. I'm a right dame giving you all the dope. And don't smoke me. The agent's eyes measured hers. He seemed deliberate. He ignored her frantic pleadings, but he saw that terror had made her speak the truth. He saw she dared not lie that gun pointed straight at her heart. He knew that she no more knew who her mysterious backwards than he did himself. A leaden weight of disappointment filled him. He spoke suddenly, his voice toneless. I didn't kill Boss Santos. I'm not going to kill you. Santos was murdered by the men you work for. You've been a dupe in a devil's game. His eyes left her twitching face, went back to the desk. His brain worked swiftly. The fate of Betty Dale hung by a slender thread. The heads of the arson ring learned that he had come here, wounded two of their hirelings, and tried to plumb their secrets. Betty Dale might meet a horrible end. They must not know. There was one desperate gamble still to be played. The agent's hand flashed out. He brought the handles of the gun down on the delicate apparatus. He smashed tubes, broke dials, wrecked the mechanism completely. Blossom O'Shane hissed suddenly. Somebody's coming. They must have heard the shots. The cops will be coming. X heard the insistent ringing of the bell, thudding blows behind it. The manager in the apartment was demanding to know what was going on. The wail of a siren suddenly lifted from the street outside. Someone in the house had called the police already. X moved past the woman, darted through the hallway into the room where death had so nearly caught him. He bent quickly over both wounded men, saw that they would live. The man by the window had a shattered shoulder. The other had caught the sword blade close to his heart. He was bleeding internally, probably, but still had a fighting chance. The agent drew out the sword and shoved it in his cane. He leaped to the window as other sirens sounded in the street like hounds giving tongue. Let Blossom O'Shane give the police any explanation she cared to. He couldn't stop her. He opened the window, stepped out, and moved swiftly down the fire escape. He paused in the shadow courtyard for a moment to make deft changes in his face. Then he slipped through an alley into the street and hailed a taxi. It carried him almost to his hideout. He left it, went the rest of the way on foot. He was tense-faced, panting when he reached his secret chamber. He changed his clothes and made up his Marsden with all the speed at his command. When the disguise was finished, he wrapped the canvas pouches of money around his waist. Then he went to a small cabin in the chamber's corner. There were assorted chemicals here, liquids, gases, and powders. The cabinet was a compact laboratory. It held some of the equipment he used when he employed science to aid him. He selected a small flask of compressed oxygen, a length of rubber tubing, and a wooden clip. He slipped them in his pocket and hurried to the street. On his way to the Hadley Hotel in another taxi, he stopped at a delicatessen and made a small purchase. He came back to the taxi carrying a paper bag. In the cab, he transferred some of the bag's contents to his pocket, leaving the remainder on the seat. A clerk behind the hotel counter nodded when he gave his name. Your room is waiting, Mr. Marsden. A boy will show you up. The clerk frowned at his lack of luggage, but X tossed a $5 bill on the desk and paid for the room in advance. He followed the bellhop grimly up to the third floor and along a corridor to the section that faced south. He tipped the boy at the door, said, That's all, Sonny, and turned the key in the lock. The room was dark and X walked to the window. It opened on a wide, traffic-filled street. Somewhere along this block, or the next, or on one of the thousands of windows that bordered it, eyes were watching. His signal would be seen by one of the arsonist heads. The agent grasped the shade and let it snap to the top. He walked back to the door, found the light switch, and winked the overhead bulbs in and out six times. 
they flashed their message to criminalize that half a million dollars in cash had been collected. The agent left his room leisurely, descended to the hotel's lobby, and drifted out into the street. He passed strolling, happy-faced people who did not guess a deadly drama near them. He dodged flying taxis and limousines, carrying men and women home from picture shows and theaters. He crossed the pavement and entered the drugstore opposite to keep his rendezvous with crime. The call did not come for nearly 15 minutes. The agent sipped a cup of coffee at the soda fountain, waiting tensely, conscious of the canvas pouches under his coat. He jumped when the telephone bell tinkled. In a moment, a clerk answered it and said, Call for Mr. Marsden. The agent entered the booth and heard again the harsh voice of the unknown criminal. You were successful, Marsden? Yes. Go to the house on Stillwell Avenue. Press the button. There was no uncertainty in the order, no betrayal of nervousness or doubt. The man who gave it was sure of his master over X because the agent would follow orders because of Betty Dale. The agent left the drugstore quickly. A taxi bore him to the house of mystery where he'd been the previous night. He entered a dark kitchen, crossed the closet with grimly resolute steps. He stepped inside and closed the door without an instant's hesitation. But before he pressed the hidden button, his hands worked deftly, swiftly. He brought the flask of oxygen from his pocket, attached the cold rubber tube to a valve at its top. He thrust the tube in his mouth, gave the valve a twist, and pressed the wooden clamp over his nostrils. He breathed a sweet, life-giving vapor and gave the button under the shelf a jab. In a moment, he felt the heavy bromine gas descending in an eerie, smothering cloud. He waited in utter darkness, knowing that he had made a gambler's play with death. Chapter 14. Murderbait. The final chapter. None of the bromine vapor entered the agent's lungs. He kept the valve in his flask half open, let the oxygen stream into his mouth, but he sank to the floor in a position of utter laxness. Endless minutes seemed to pass before steps sounded. The flask of compressed gas was almost empty when they paused outside the door. The agent took a deep breath of oxygen, filling his lungs, then swiftly, cautiously put his flask and tube and clamp away. He lay like a man, unconscious, while the door opened softly. A light flicked on. Through closed eyelids, he could see the redness of it plain over his face. A harsh voice spoke a whispered order, and two men picked him up. He was lifted, carried to a square box, and dumped inside it. With his knees drawn up to his chin, his body just fit. The lid that was instantly clamped down pressed against his head. He felt the box lifted, knew that he was being carried again to an accompaniment of stealthily shuffling feet. They crossed the kitchen, climbed the basement stairs, moved into the street. The box was raised higher and deposited in a car. Another whispered order which he couldn't catch and the mysterious car rolled away. Fully 15 minutes passed. Once a policeman's whistle shrilled, the next news was being taken through the heart of town. A million dollars was passing on the officer's nose and he didn't know it. Crime was making one of his biggest plays while the law looked on. The car stopped at last and the box was lifted from it. Like a package of laundry or merchandise, X was carried through some sort of alley. He heard shoes scrape down stone steps and was borne across the floor. The box was set down a moment and the door clicked open. It was lifted and placed on what seemed to be a wobbly shelf. Then the door catch clicked again. In a moment, X heard the slapping ropes of a dumbwaiter. The shelf he was on jerked and quivered. He had a distinct sensation of ascent. It kept up for many seconds before the dumbwaiter stopped. Muffled steps sounded somewhere not far off. A second door clicked and the box the agent was in was jerked roughly forward. It was carried about 20 feet, set down. The agent tensed as the clamps above him grated. Deft hands above him slowly raised the lid. The agent's eyes, smothered in darkness for the past 20 minutes, saw plainly. He got a glimpse of a sinister, black-masked figure. He was in the secret meeting place of the arson ring's heads. Four pairs of hands reached in and lifted him cautiously. Through half-open eyelids, he caught sight of a third-masked figure holding a gun. The weapon was pointed toward him. These vulture-like men would seem ready for any trick. They laid cunning plans and added evil caution. 
The agent came to life at the instant his feet touched the floor, risking everything in this final, desperate play. He swung both arms like flails and shoved back with all the force in his legs. He went down in a tangle of cursing, tumbling bodies. Fists struck at him with battering ram blows. Arms tried to hold him like twining snakes. He got a swirling glimpse of masked faces and glittering, murderous eyes. He saw the man with the gun trying to find a spot to shoot. Saw him crouching, hand poised to fire. He gave the killer no chance to aim. In that lightning-fast, tumbling battle, a bullet would menace the lives of his masked assailants. He was counting on this, risking a shot in those first mad seconds. He fought with a fury of desperation, fought with the knowledge that this was his last and only chance, but he didn't lose his head. He struck with tight-knuckled fists, delivering blows that brought a gasping grunt. A man's voice close behind him screamed an order. To gun! Over here! Let me have it! Quick! The masked figure with the weapon moved closer. Another voice snarled. Shoot, damn it! Shoot! There was a jab of metal across the agent's shoulder. A muffled report came, so close that powder flame singed the agent's neck. The gun had a silencer on it. The bullet had missed him by a fraction only. The next one might strike home, for the masked men were becoming desperate. The man they had thought was unconscious had become a human tornado in the room. The agent sensed his increasing peril. He landed a blow against the masked face, driving his knuckles into teeth. He heaved up with his left arm, got a second masked figure almost on his shoulder, and jerked himself erect. Head down, half stumbling, he flung his human missile at the man with the gun. The armed man sidestepped and the agent leaped away. He plunged across the box that had held him as bullets probed for his life. He lifted the box and threw it at the masked killer with all his might. The man cried out and went down with clawing arms, the box on top of him. His gun spun away. Another vulture-like figure tried to snatch it up and the agent's fist cracked behind his ear. The man fell sprawling while the agent caught up the gun. He turned and saw that the third masked criminal had got a science weapon from somewhere. Their arms swung up together. The agent's was a fraction of a second more swift. Flames spurted from the sound, deadening tubes at the gun's end simultaneously. Lead plucked at the agent's arm, but struck the man before him in the dead center of the chest. The man spun on his feet, black coat swirling away from his body like membrous wings. He pitched forth a gurgling scream and lay on his face. The figure beneath the box was just getting up. X thrust the gun toward him, menaced him with a harsh command. Back up! Raise your hands! You too, or you'll get what your friend here just got. He included the second masked figure in the deadly arc of his gun. Both men raised their arms above their shoulders, glaring hate through slitted eyes. The agent spoke again. Release Betty Dale at once. The masked figure debated a moment, then reached for the telephone. Bill, I've changed my mind. Let the girl go. Have her call back as soon as she is free. Replacing the phone, he chuckled. Betty Dale's now walking into the streets a free woman. Or she will be free for about 15 minutes before the police will pick her up. Then she will burn in the electric chair. It was a very clever move on your part, Mr. Secret Agent X. The black figure shook with mirthless glee. X said a bleak nothing. In 10 minutes' time, the phone rang. He scooped it up and made a soft, melodious whistle that sounded strangely in that room. It's you, came the breathless answer. I don't understand it, but they've let me go. Yes, I've persuaded certain gentlemen to let you go. Now listen closely. Get in touch with headquarters. Tell Inspector Burks how you were taken prisoner. Isn't it dangerous, the police? You trust me, don't you? Yes, you know I do. Then she added quickly. Wait, the number I was given was Matthew Monkford's apartment. I remember because I called him and tried to get a story. I know that, Betty, and you can tell that to Inspector Burks. The police will find the heads of the arson ring here and Slater's money. Goodbye, Betty. One of the masked figures leaned toward X. And now, Mr. X, you have strapped the girl into the death chair. That is merely your opinion, Matthew Monkford. You can take off your mask. The fingers of one masked figure plucked at his face. The mask came away, revealing features that the agent had seen before. The shrewd, austere features of Matthew Monkford. 
He stood like a statue while his companion also unmasked. Joe Rice stared at the agent. X knew without looking that the third was Purcell, the man who was now a corpse. When you walk into the death house, Monkford, you can blame only yourself for going there. It's ironic that the thing that first trapped me is the one thing that started me thinking in your direction. Your phenomenal memory for figures and dates. You had policy figures of other companies than your own right at your fingertips. Monkford's eyes did not flicker. They held the agent's glittering contempt. Let's start at the beginning, Mr. X. From the first, you've been outwitted. You were fooled by the little drama in my office. Purcell knew you were an imposter when you toyed with a pencil in your right hand. You rescued us from our own men. She must spoil our plans by phoning for the police. We're giving you credit for daring from the beginning. It's only in the field of sheer intellect that you failed. We let you live because we hope to use you. If you've got Slater's money, hand it over and we'll see that it can be arranged. Purcell's death is unfortunate, but will cause no stir in police circles. So it is known we are being victimized by criminals. You've gained nothing by setting Betty Dale free. She will die by the law. You're forgetting the films, Monkford. What films? demanded Monkford, and his voice showed the first tinge of fear. The films of Betty Dale. The ones you took when you first brought her here and drugged her, which took place before the fire at Jacoby's store. Betty Dale was not at Jacoby's store. Her image appeared on the blank wall of the balcony because she threw a colored telephoto picture from a movie projector. Possibly one of your men was hidden about a block away to do the job. Double films made the image stereoscopic. With these films in my possession, Betty Dale will be cleared of starting the fire. Now get them. Monkford tensed. Rice gulped. Better take a chance on his bullets, Monk. Those films will. The agent backed away suddenly and unbuttoned his coat. His left hand plunged inside. His voice came tonelessly like a prophecy of doom. All right, Monkford, I see you've chosen death, but let me choose the way you'll die. His hand came into sight, grasping a nut-like missile. One of your bombs didn't explode the fire. I've saved it carefully for just such use as this. Monkford's face went rigid. The agent's voice droned on. You'll go out knowing the bitter taste of your own medicine. X raised his hand, poised to throw the object forward, and Matthew Monkford screamed. He went down on his knees suddenly, slobbering insanely. I'm wrong. Give up. You outplayed us. I, I don't... Don't throw it in heaven's name. I'll get the films. Monkford walked stiffly to a desk against the wall. While X watched him eagle-eyed, ready for any treacherous move, Monkford lifted a round package. Put them there on the table, said X. Then go back and stand by the wall. Monkford obeyed and the agent backed toward the films. For a moment, he put the round thing in his hand on the table, stripped the canvas pouches from around his waist. $500,000, he said coolly. The police will find them here beside the films. The cops have the number of every bill, of course. Slater, as you said yourself, was stubborn. The district attorney will enjoy finding them for his case against you. And now, Monkford, I'm going to say goodbye. In the agent's hand was the round object that had made Monkford weak with fear. Monkford's eyes widened. He screamed horribly as X suddenly hurled the thing at his feet. He staggered back, clutching at the wall. The agent's voice cut through his panic. Study, my friend. Look at it carefully. See what it is. Monkford's eyes rolled wildly to the thing at his feet. It cracked open when it struck the floor. But instead of shooting fomic acid, crystals that would cause the bloating death, only yellow kernels showed. Just a walnut, said X softly. I stopped at a store and bought some on the way here tonight. The size of your pet bombs gave me the idea. A bluff took the last trick against criminal masterminds. The snarling cry of anger in Monkford's throat was cut short by the spurt of vapor from a gun the agent whipped into view. The gas that would keep him quiet till the police arrived sent Monkford to his knees, then to the floor. 
Another spurt made Joe Rice follow. The agent slipped through the apartment like a shadow. A door opened and closed behind him. He walked leisurely down a hall. For a second time, his strange, eerie whistle sounded. Its echo hovered like an all-knowing presence in the chamber with the three silent men. It grew more distant slowly, faded, and was gone. And thanks for listening to today. That is the end of the Secret Agent X story, The Fear Merchants. Just a reminder, if you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. This has been a Brick Pickle Media production. We'll be back with a new episode next week.